You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear the true story of a train that derailed kept on going, and eventually jumped right back onto the tracks. Then you'll learn about a man who claimed ownership to nearly the entire universe. Plus, you'll hear about a bet in which the loser had to eat one million peas. All that plus additional true stories, today's retro sponsor, and the question of the day. All that is coming up next on today's Retrocast. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless information. Hi everyone, I hope you're doing well. Now before we dive into today's collection of short stories, I just want to give you a bit of an update on one of the stories that I told in Retrocast number 5, and that was released way back in November of 2021. If you recall, I told a 15-year-old Joanna Mankiewicz who was puzzled by a math problem that her teacher had assigned. In fact, everyone in her class was stumped by the problem, so Joanna decided to seek the assistance of someone who was really, really smart. She penned a letter to the one and only Albert Einstein asking for his help, and surprisingly, Einstein wrote back and offered up his solution. But then, after the story appeared in the newspapers all across the nation, an Athens, Ohio math teacher named Harold Lee realized that Einstein had answered the question incorrectly. Yes, even geniuses sometimes make errors. Well, that letter is being sold right now by Bonham's Auction House in New York City, and the sale will run from April 24th through May 3rd. So if you want to own a piece of science history, and I should point out that it includes Einstein's sketch, his explanation, and his initials at the end, all you have to do is head on over to their website. The winning bid is estimated to come in between ten dollars and $15,000, So if that's a little bit out of your price range, you can do just like I did and just take a look at the images of the actual letter and its accompanying airmail envelope. So what I'll do is I'll place a link to it in both the show notes for this episode and on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. Now, if you do check it out, take note of Joanna's incredible penmanship. It is beautiful. All I can say is that Einstein's, well, it wasn't quite as nice. It's more like what I'd expect of a scientist but it is definitely worth checking out. And now on with the show. As you know, the world is full of dreamers, and I have to tell you, Arthur Dean Lindsay, well, he was definitely one of them. He later described how his vision came to him, quote, On a May night in 1936, I was watching the full moon. It seemed so large and beautiful that I thought of it as real estate and said to myself, nobody owns it. 
Then I decided to acquire it by original claim deed. Well, he pondered this thought for the next year, and on June 15th of 1937, accompanied by witness Lawrence J. Dignam, he presented himself before Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania notary public Harry Heeg with documents claiming, quote, all of the property known as the planets, islands of space, or other matter, henceforth to be known as A.D. Lindsay's Archipelago, located in all the region visible by any means upward or in any other direction, from the city of Asilla, Georgia, together with all the planets, islands of space, or other matter, except this world, the moon, and the planet Saturn, visible from any other planet, island of space, or other matter. I should point out that separate papers were drawn up for both the moon and Saturn. Yes, you heard that right. He claimed ownership of everything in space except for Earth itself. And when questioned as to why he did it, he responded, quote, No one else has done it. Why shouldn't I? And just why didn't he want the Earth? He explained, quote, Someone got it first. But then he quickly added, I wouldn't want it anyway. His next step was to pen a letter to R.K. Brown, the clerk of Superior Court in Asilla, explaining that no one had claimed ownership of all these properties, so he'd be the one to do so. And with that, on June 28th of 1937, in Deed Book 11, pages 28 and 29, Lindsay's deeds were recorded at the Irwin County Courthouse in Osilla. As crazy as this all seems to be, Lindsay had previously laid claim to the world's oceans and had already sold off some of those holdings. He was able to produce receipts showing that he had sold the Atlantic to Francis W. Hanley of Pittsburgh, the Pacific to Albert E. Ansis of the same city, and the Indian Ocean to Mrs. Flora Fisher of New York City. The selling price of each of these oceans was never disclosed, but a United Press article described Lindsay as having been, quote, financially embarrassed, although Lindsay himself preferred to say that he was, quote, the richest man in the universe. Now, one thing that he did make clear is that he planned to keep all the planets off the market for the time being, and he explained why, quote, after all, the planets are tax-exempt. I won't have to pay the government anything to keep them. Lindsay also added that he had no plans of ever visiting his distant properties, and he really wasn't too concerned about infringing on the property rights of those little green men, you know, the ones living on Mars. He compared his acquisition of the planets to the displacement of the Native Americans by white people, but he denied any intention of engaging in, quote, terrestrial imperialism. Luckily for all of humankind, Lindsay thought ahead and drew up a will detailing how each of his holdings should be distributed upon his death. And this may explain why he made up his claims for the moon and Saturn separate from everything else in the sky. Quote, That the portion of my property commonly called the moon and located in Lindsay's archipelago, commonly called the sky, shall at my death become the property of all persons who bear the name of Lindsay and to their heirs forever. And that's the end of the quote. But I have to tell you, this makes me wonder. Is he referring to those people with the first name of Lindsay or those who have a last name of Lindsay or both? And does the spelling of Lindsay matter? Well, you know what? I'm going to be the judge here and say anyone out there who has Lindsay in their name in any form, you now are a partial owner of the moon. Congratulations. Now, he also reserves Saturn as a wedding gift for some unnamed future bride because, quote, it is the most beautiful of all planets. 
I have to tell you, I found no evidence that he ever gave Saturn away. So I, from this moment on, I put in my claim for that planet. Saturn now belongs to my beautiful bride, my wife, Mary Jane. I'm sure she's going to be thrilled to find out she now owns Saturn. As for the remainder of his celestial holdings, Lindsay declared that they, quote, shall become the private property of all mankind. Lindsay's claim would soon be the subject of the syndicated This Curious World, which was drawn by William Ferguson, and it was basically a clone of Ripley's Believe It or Not. Under a rectangular sketch of the sun, five planets, and the moon, the text reads, quote, One man, A. Dean Lindsay of Osceola, Georgia, holds original claim and general warranty deeds to the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the planets except our Earth. Papers are recorded at Irwin County Courthouse, Osceola, Georgia. What's interesting is that Lindsay had already been the subject of a Ripley's newspaper panel, but it was for a completely different reason. You see, just two years earlier, in August of 1935, Ripley penned, quote, Aideen Lindsay, founder of Young Americans, succeeded in taming and domesticating a porcupine. <laughs> well, certainly not as outlandish as his claim for the oceans and everything in the sky, Lindsay would make the news fairly frequently for the next five years as he took his trained porcupines to various schools around the country. He claimed that at one time he had caught live porcupines and then sold them to zoos. But then, after reading in an encyclopedia that porcupines couldn't be tamed or trained, he took it upon himself to prove the experts wrong. So in 1930, he caught an adult female near Lake Erie, named her Smoky Lady based on the color of her fur, and he did manage to tame her. Quote, She's affectionate with others, too. I visited many schools, and hundreds of boys and girls have handled her as they would a doll. She gets as much fun out of it as they. Now, I must admit I don't know much about porcupines, but I do have a really beautiful bridge in Brooklyn that I'd like to sell you. So if you want to buy it, just get in touch with me and I'd be happy to discuss the terms with you. Next up, I have a really good train story. And I guess a good place to start this is on December 18th in 1940. That's when the Illinois Central Railroad introduced its new seven-car coach streamliner diesel train. And it was named the City of Miami. And its route was from Chicago to, guess where, Miami. Yet the train was nearly lost when it was traveling just south of Columbus, Georgia on May 22nd of 1941. At around 6.30 in the morning while traveling northbound, it was going over a crossing at Brennan Road, and one of the rails beneath the train had just split in two, and that resulted in the derailment of the back wheels of one of the passenger cars. So the wheels, they just scraped against the track, and that caused the heads of the rail spikes to just shear off and scatter in various directions like shrapnel. The sound was deafening and a cloud of dust, it just filled the air. Unaware that one of the cars had derailed, the conductor kept the train going as it crossed a trestle over Bull Creek, and that stood at an estimated 40 feet or 12.2 meters above the water's surface. Then the track curved 45 degrees, and at about one half of a mile, that's 0.8 kilometers from where it first derailed, the rail line it merged with another track. Oh. But in one of those against-all-odds situations, the derailed truck, you know, the wheels, it hit both a guardrail and a frog. Now, if you 
don't know what a frog is, basically it's a piece of track work that allows a train's wheels to cross from one set of tracks to another. Anyway, it hit the guardrail on the frog and then it jumped right back onto the track and it continued along its way as if nothing had ever happened. Basically, the derailed train re-railed itself. T.E. Baseman, the section foreman later said, quote, Had the frog been facing the other way, nothing in the world could have kept it from going over, since the frog in that position would have veered it farther to the right and derailed the whole train. And then there was E.E. E. Harbuck, who was working at the Consolidated Gravel Company, which was located about 100 yards, or 91.4 meters, below the spot where the train first derailed. And he saw all the flying debris and immediately called railroad officials. Now, around the same time, there was a train loaded with 600 troops from nearby Fort Benning, and it was approaching the scene of the accident. Luckily, motorist H.W. Corbett jumped out of his car and he was able to flag down the train, and it stopped just in time. Then, another train, the Seminole, stopped right behind that troop train, and that was followed by a freight train that screeched to a halt. All three of the trains would have to wait at least an hour until the track was repaired. The next day, Cloyd R. Baldwin, who was the superintendent of the Central Georgia Columbus District, told the Columbus Ledger, quote, Railroad men knew nothing of the train's derailment yesterday until it had come and gone. The train was stopped, however, at Opelika, and the crew instructed to make a thorough examination as to whether it had been the city of Miami which had left the tracks. I should mention that Opelika is in Alabama, and it lies approximately 30 miles or 48.3 kilometers away from the site of that derailment. Anyway, the quote continues. The crew found that the rear wheel next to the last coast had been off the track, marks on it indicating that it had rubbed against the side of the rail. A careful examination of the rail that broke shows it was a new break. There was little damage to the track and none to the streamliner. The speed of the train at the time it jumped the track was approximately 30 miles per hour. That's about 48.3 kilometers per hour. The train arrived in Birmingham 8 minutes late and Jackson, Tennessee 4 minutes late. There were no other late reports. I have to tell you, I really wonder if this would happen today. Not the derailment, but I'm talking about would they let the train just continue along its way? And would they restore service on the broken track an hour after it happened? I'm guessing not. Now, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I spent nearly my entire professional career teaching high school science. And there was this old joke in the school that I taught in that the teachers were always the last to know. Somehow, the kids always seemed to learn what was going on long before we ever did. You know, sometimes it was something simple, like the kids knowing before we ever did that we were going home early due to bad weather conditions. But at other times, there may be a cop car outside or whatever, and the kids knew exactly what was going on, but the teachers had no clue. Now, this next story, which took place in Manhattan on Friday of March 13th in 1953, is probably a good example of only the students knowing what was going on. It all started at PS90, or Public School 90, which was located at 220 West 148th Street, as I said, in Manhattan. As a little side note, today that majestic 1906 building is home to the National Dance Institute, plus a number of condos and apartments. Anyway, what the kids knew and the teachers didn't was that three of the students had witnessed the murder and burial of one of their classmates. That was eight-year-old Ronnie Fears. 
What started with just a few students in the know began to swell and swell until it seemed as if everyone except the teachers knew what had happened. That was until one unidentified student went to the main office and spilled the beans. So Principal William Lichtenstein was appalled by what he had just learned, and he immediately contacted the police. Officers from both the Amsterdam Avenue and the West 135th Street stations raced to the school with their sirens blasting. To assist them were members of the emergency squad 5, who had picks and shovels in hand to help exhume the body. In addition, there were detectives and other departmental brass to assist in the search. It was 8-year-old Jose Bryan who told the officers what he had witnessed. And then there were the two six-year-olds, those were Elijah Williams and Brenner Newman, who just nodded in agreement as Jose told the story. It seems that two days earlier, in the dead of the night, two other boys, that's not the ones I just mentioned, two other boys strangled young Ronnie Fears to death, after which they buried the body in the rubble of a building that was being demolished near 145th Street and Edgecombe Avenue. So the officers quickly got to work. They tossed bricks and other debris aside as they proceeded to dig several trenches in search of the victim. But there was no sign of a body. But finally, young Elias spoke up and said that the burial had been in, quote, a different mountain, and he led the two policemen and a detective across the street to Colonial Park, which was renamed Jackie Robinson Park in 1978. But once again, the men still found nothing. While this was going on, someone decided to do some checking. Clearly, if Ronnie had been missing for two days, his family would have been in a panic trying to find him. I mean, wouldn't you? And that's when it was learned that Ronnie had, in fact, disappeared from the school, but for a totally different reason. You see, about a week earlier, Ronnie and his family, they picked up and they moved to Far Rockaway in Queens. Yes, Ronnie fears he was alive and doing well. After being assured that he wouldn't get into any trouble, Jose finally admitted that there had been no murder. In fact, there was no buried body, and the two other boys, they had nothing to do with it. What had really happened was that about one week earlier, Jose had been hanging around the demolition site, and an officer came up to him and asked him to leave. He told Jose, quote, get away or you'll have your head chopped off. Well, Jose, he was able to get his revenge by making the officers spend two hours of their time digging through the rubble for an imaginary corpse. Perhaps the most iconic magic trick is pulling a rabbit out of a top hat. But I have to ask you, have you ever seen a magician do it? I mean, I've seen it performed in movies, on TV, and particularly in cartoons. But I really don't remember ever seeing a magician do it live, you know, right in front of me. And after a bit of research, I found that there's a reason for that. And that's because few magicians ever perform this trick. But there is one that I've definitely seen, and there are many, many variations on it. That is sawing a woman in half. So here's a question for you. In what year did a magician publicly, you know, before a live audience, first saw someone in half? And you may not know the exact answer, so I'll give you credit on this quiz if you can get within five years of the answer, you know, one way or the other. Well, hang around for a bit and I'll let you know the answer at the end of this podcast. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. That's the last time I'll trade with that hardware joint. 39 cents for a little bottle of rod varnish that I only paid two bits for, the same size bottle in 1930. <laughs> Boy, the way the cost of living has gone up, it's that sweet. Hey, pal, wait a sec. Huh? Oh, hi, Junior. Where are you off to in your Sunday suit, son? This is Tuesday, remember? I am on my way over to the high school, pal. I am delivering the commencement address to the graduates. No. How about that? No kidding. You. Big public speaker, huh? Yep. Been working on my speech all week. My title is The Bright New World. You like it? Well, that sounds about normal for a graduation speech. <laughs> I wonder if anybody ever thought of addressing a bunch of graduates on the evils of having to get out and go to work or... <laughs> Out of the classroom, into the fire. No, 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 pal. You want to make these things inspirational. Yeah, I thought I was. Happy, happy. <laughs> I open by telling the graduates their future is entirely up to them. Well, that ought to scare the junior out of them. <laughs> I tell them that each and every one of them can make this a brighter world to live in. The only world we got, so they might as well do the best they can. As you, <laughs> as you walk through life, I say, it is within your power to make everything you touch gleam all the more brightly for your having passed that way. Say, that's good. <laughs> I suppose they do that with a smile and a cheery handshake. <laughs> No, they do it with a paintbrush and a can of shiny yeah. liquid aluminum. Ah, uh, for the love of Edgar Guest, that's the. I tell thing. them how I tell them how they can paint their metal screens, tools, basement pipes, gutters, fences, almost anything with beautiful liquid aluminum made with Reynolds aluminum pigment. Yeah. How it protects and preserves against rust and decay. Will it protect them against long speeches? Because that's the protection they're going to need when you then. Can... Then I switch to the subject of friendship. Friendship. Yes. I point out that true friends are a wonderful thing. Ah, oh, yes. Something to cherish always. And I bring in the fact that one of their best friends is their local paint dealer. Ah, oh, this is... The man who good. handles liquid aluminum with mm. the gleaming foil label. Yeah. In every size container from half a pint to five gallons. Well, sure. Liquid aluminum made by so many leading paint manufacturers using Reynolds aluminum pigment. Yeah. Liquid aluminum... Hey, that you hey, can use hey, hey. Look, Loomy. Yes, pal. <laughs> I'm working over my fishing tackle today. You want to go fishing tomorrow, Dugan's Lake? I'd love to, pal, but I'm being given a big honor tomorrow afternoon over at the college. At the college? Yes, yes. They're conferring an honorary D.A. degree. <laughs> you mean B.A., Bachelor of Arts. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. D.A., Doctor of Aluminum. So long. That commercial for Reynolds Liquid Aluminum is from the June 23, 1953 broadcast of Fibra McGee and Molly. This particular episode was titled Operation Skywatch. Fibber McGee and Molly was one of the longest-running radio programs ever, having run on the NBC network from 1935 all the way through to 1959, at which point the show switched unsuccessfully to television. This husband-and-wife radio comedy featured the real-life married couple of Marion and Jim Jordan, who were both natives of Peoria, Illinois. Now, when the show moved to television, neither would be part of the cast, and that's mainly because Marion was too ill from cancer to continue acting, and she passed away on April 7th of 1961 at 62 years of age. Jim would remarry a year later, and he was 92 years old when he passed away on April 1st of 1988.
The advertiser for this episode was, of course, Reynolds Metals. And when Reynolds began in 1919 as the U.S. foil company in Louisville, Kentucky, they mostly supplied foils made of lead and tin to cigarette and candy manufacturers. They began to market aluminum foil wrappings in 1926, but the aluminum foil itself, that was manufactured for them by other companies. Then, after various acquisitions, the company became Reynolds Metals in 1928. But it wasn't until 1941 when Reynolds opened its first smelter in Sheffield, Alabama, that the company got into the business of producing its own aluminum goods. Of course, this is just around the time that the U.S. got into World War II, and Reynolds quickly expanded its aluminum production as part of the war effort. Anyway, after the war, Reynolds needed to find other uses for its smelted aluminum, so in 1945, they came up with aluminum siding. Two years later, they introduced the famous Reynolds Wrap aluminum foil, which is probably present in most people's homes, and then the liquid aluminum that's featured in the advertisement that you just heard, that was first introduced in nine major cities in 1952 before it went nationwide the following year, which is the same year that this ad was broadcast. Reynolds invested in an estimated $250,000, that's over $2.8 million today, to promote their aluminum paint. As for the name Reynolds Liquid Aluminum, the name is a bit misleading, and that's because the aluminum was not liquid. It was really very fine aluminum flakes that were added to paints. Then, as the paint dried, the aluminum flakes they would float to the surface where they overlapped in a process that Reynolds coined full leafing. The net result of all this was that you had a highly reflective and smooth aluminum surface. I should also point out that Reynolds never made any paint. That was done by hundreds of paint manufacturers all across the country, and it didn't matter if they were large or small. Reynolds, what they did is they supplied the aluminum pigment, and the manufacturers agreed to produce the paint to the company's strict specifications. I have to admit that it's difficult to determine how successful this push by Reynolds for the liquid aluminum product was. You know, nearly all the advertising for liquid aluminum ceased within a few years. And other than some metal roofs that I see occasionally, my hunch is that aluminum paint is not widely used today. I mean, it may be done in a commercial setting, but certainly not among us homeowners. And now it's time for Footnotes to History. Now, for those of you listening to this podcast for the first time, these are five shorter stories that really require no further research. So I'm just going to read them word for word. And this first story appeared in the March 20th, 1922 edition of the Boston Globe on page five. The headline reads, Bluff is called, may have to devour one million peas. And the subheadline reads, John D. Wainwright, Medibemp's Maine, commences counting him with the hope that Henry Parrish made mistake. Novel bet made. Special dispatch to the Globe. Bangor, Maine, March 19th. John D. Wainwright of Medibemp's today started to count the peas in jars said to contain one million of them. If there's exactly that number, Wainwright will have to eat them, but if that figure is one out of the way, Henry Parrish must do so. It started in an argument on Washington's birthday. Parrish offered to bet $2.50 that he could count 1 million peas in a month, and Wainwright took him up. After he had counted out 100,000, Wainwright suggested that they amend the wager to read that if the count was incorrect, Parrish would eat the peas, 
while Wainwright would do if it was correct. Parrish counted the first 100,000 over again and was filled with nervous dread when he found out he was three peas out of the way. He proceeded with the count with the utmost care and last night announced that it was finished. Wainwright offered to assume that the count was correct and pay Parrish $2.50 if he would waive the eating clause, but Parrish refused to do so. As is typical with the press, there was no follow-up on this story in the Globe, so I guess we'll never know who ate the peas if they were ever eaten at all. Maybe they both agreed to the $2.50 bet, which is about $45 today, and they just left it at that. But that did get me wondering as to how much volume 1 million peas would take up. So I decided to use the latest and greatest in technology, you know, AI, to answer the question. I used both the Bing and Google versions just to see how they compared, and my first step was to ask how many peas are contained in a single can, and neither one gave an exact answer. They just gave me a range. And I don't remember exactly what it came up with, but I think it was between 80 and 300 peas in a can. Later on, I asked Google's Bard how much space a million peas would take up, and it concluded to be about the size of a refrigerator. So, in the name of science, I went to the supermarket and I spent a whole 98 cents to purchase a can of peas, and here's what I came up with. There weren't 80 or 300 peas in that can. There were 674 peas in that standard can of peas. Then I took those peas and poured them into my Pyrex measuring cup, which I know isn't the most accurate of measuring devices, and it took up 375 milliliters of space. So I extrapolated that out to 1 million peas, and here's what I came up with. That would be either 556.4 liters or about 147 gallons. Just roughly, that's around two and a half of those steel drums that they use in industry. Uh, I compared it with my refrigerator, which is a little bit on the large size, and it's not quite that big. Either way, that's a lot of peas to eat. (laughs) This next story appeared on the front page of the Dayton Daily News on January 21st of 1937. The headline is Miss Stumpf to become bride of Mr. Zumpft. Cleveland, January 21st, Associated Press. What's in a name philosophize Frederick Zump today as he completed plans for a public wedding February 6th in which pretty Miss Alita Stump will become his bride? The Zump Stump ceremony is to be a feature of the annual Cleveland Food Show. The Reverend Walter Klein, Evangelical Lutheran clergyman, will read the marriage vows. Quote, Romance is the thing, Zump continued. We've been waiting seven years since high school days. The prospective bridegroom became biblical. Quote, After all, Jacob worked seven years for Rachel and then got Leah instead, and not much of a wedding either. I figure I'm a lucky man. And now I'll switch to my female voice. Mrs. Alita Stump Zump, I challenge you to say it fast, said Miss Stump, blonde winner of her recent Germania Turnverein beauty contest. Quote, it won't be much of a change in name. Just move back the T and change the S to Z. Now, I did quickly check Ancestry to see if they stayed married, and they did. She passed away in 1976 at the age of 61, and he died in 1994 at the age of 81. 
This third story appeared in the April 22nd, 1943 edition of the Hattiesburg American on page 7. The headline reads, Boys Court Plea Wins Suit and a New Home by Associated Press, Detroit, April 22nd. The smiles lighting the faces of Mrs. Chrissy Cullivas and her four boys today were as warming and as gay as spring sunshine itself. Thanks to the valor of 10-year-old William, the group was leaving a ramshackle store-building home for a new place provided for them by an anonymous donor. Holly gee whiz, said William, tell me again. My Billy boy, he's wonderful, exclaimed Mrs. Cullivas through tears. That was the reaction when the news of their sudden change in fortune was brought to them. It was on account of Billy's court appearance Tuesday all by himself to fight and win an eviction suit. The Greek family's story of how Billy did the cooking and cared for three younger brothers while mother held down an $18 a week laundry job got around town as a result. Billy's father is in an infirmary. Then came the donor. Furthermore, he's giving Mrs. Colibus a job as a war worker. Quote, Oh, I shall work hard, she said. I shall like that. I have relatives in Greece. Hardship had been with the family since February 1942 when their restaurant burned down. Mother Colibus, however, with Billy as next in command, kept the family together despite handicaps. While his mother worked, Billy went to school and managed the household as well taking care of brothers Tony 8, George 7, and Danny 4. Then the rent was raised from $20 to $30 a month, and an eviction suit begun when Mrs. Colavis protested. But Billy saved the day, the case being dismissed when the court found that the landlord had failed to register with the Office of Price Administration. And there's a new home now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Next up, we have a story from the December 8, 1949 publication of the Akron Beacon Journal. This appeared on page 4. The headline reads, Nose Knows a Good Thing, Los Angeles Associated Press. John B. Bidigan won a new career by a nose. The 36-year-old Frenchman lost his nose in 1942 while lighting a gasoline stove. It exploded, searing his face. Bidigan couldn't get a job after leaving the hospital. He entered Los Angeles County's Rancho Los Amigos as an indigent. Quote, Why don't you make yourself a nose? The manager of the rehabilitation workshop asked him. Bidigan made a plaster of Paris cast of his face. He fashioned a nose of modeling clay. By pouring polyvinyl chloride, which we call PVC today, by pouring polyvinyl chloride, a flexible, non-toxic plastic, into it, He got a new nose, a product of his own skill. He wears it proudly, touched up with cosmetics, and held fast with spirit gum. Now Bidigan is fitting himself for a new job, plaster molding. And this last footnote is also from the Akron Beacon Journal. 
It appeared in the November 25th, 1953 edition on page one. The headline reads, Daughters in it, but chair rocks ma. The song, Oh Rockin' Chairs Got Me, is taboo in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Michael Cornicelli, 1238 Louisiana Avenue. Reason is a rocking chair really had their 16-month-old daughter Jackie Tuesday night, and the situation nearly drove Mrs. Cornicelli rantic. Jackie and two brothers were watching TV while their mother finished the dishes. Jackie was sitting in a child's rocking chair with one of those attached trays. Somehow Jackie got all tangled up, her head and shoulders sticking under the tray, one leg doubled under her, and the other leg stuck between the wooden bars of the chair. Mrs. Cornicelli tried for a half hour to free her daughter. By then she was really worried and called police. Police called firemen who tried for 15 minutes before deciding to take the chair apart piece by piece. Jackie was finally freed. Firemen put the chair back together again and the child headed right for it, trying to crawl in again. Quote, I'm giving that thing away, said Mrs. Cornicelli. You know what? I may have seen that sitting by the side of the road the other day. Mm, Well, maybe not. So early in the podcast, I had asked you when a magician first placed a woman in a box and used a saw to cut her in half. Did you know the answer? Well, first, there's some debate over when the idea to do so was first conceived. Some trace it back to the mid-1800s, while a few researchers have followed it all the way back to the time of the ancient Egyptians. Of course, having the concept is one thing, but there's really no debate as to when it was first performed publicly. This was done by magician P.T. Selbit, whose real name was Percy Thomas Tibbles. Percy Thomas is P.T., and Tibbles spelled backwards less 1B produces his pseudonym of Selbit. It was on January 17th of 1921 that Selbit and his lovely assistant Betty Barker They walked out on the stage of North London's Finsbury Park Empire, and they did what no magician had ever done before. He first tied ropes around Betty's wrists, ankles, and neck, and then he fed those ropes through holes in an upright wooden box. Then as Betty stood inside the box, members of the audience were called up to pull the ropes tight so Betty was unable to move. These ropes were then knotted from the outside of the box. At that point, his assistants closed up the box and they turned it horizontally. Unlike how the trick is typically performed today, Betty's body was completely encased by the box. In other words, her hands, her feet, and her head were not sticking out. All one could see from the outside were those taut ropes. Selbit then proceeded to take thick sheets of glass and push them through slits in the box, and apparently, they went right through her body before they re-emerged on the underside of the box. And you know exactly what happened next. Selba picked up a saw and he proceeded to cut right through the middle of the box. Of course, when it was all over, Betty Barker emerged from the box unscathed. And soon Selba was performing this illusion all over Europe. And of course, it's a trick that magicians have been modifying and performing worldwide ever since. I hope you enjoyed the stories that I selected for today's retrocast. I rewrote that story on Arthur Dean Lindsay, the guy who claimed to own the entire universe, multiple times. And that's mainly because I kept finding additional information. At one point, I was thinking about making it an entire episode in itself, but I ultimately decided against it. I think I have a 
better story that I'm currently working on for the next full-length uh, episode, so stay tuned for that. A quick reminder, if you haven't done so yet, is that I'd greatly appreciate it if you could complete a short survey that Airwave Media, that's the network that this podcast is on, if you can complete the short survey that they've prepared for the listeners of this podcast. The survey can be found at www.surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. But I also have the link on my website, that's uselessinformation.org, and it's the second story down on the page. It really takes little time to complete. It's totally anonymous, but if you do provide your email address, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a $500 Amazon gift card. The Useless Information Podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Network. You can discover more great podcasts just like this one at airwavemedia.com. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.